If you don't know Matt, Matt is our president, second year as the president of RUF, and he would simply say he just enjoys doing ministry on ministry team, and that's the same as what he would do otherwise. Um, but he's also going to be an intern next year with RUF at Millersville and is considering a call to ministry. And one of the ways that we test the gifts that God has given us is by preaching. And so I asked Matt if he would be willing to preach this semester, and he was happy to do so. And so, Matt, bring the word. Thank you all for coming out. And hope you had a good spring break. All right. I think we're all ready. So when I was in fifth grade, my elementary school started a new kindness campaign to get all of us 10-year-olds excited about being nice to each other. I remember teachers put up posters all over the walls, and they started handing out these little coupons every time you'd do something nice for someone, and you could redeem them for snacks and other cool things. And we even came up with our very own song, which I still remember from about 12 years later. (laughs) Kindness is contagious. Catch it now. Catch it now. Kindness is contagious. Do you know how? Do you know how? And I'm sure you're dying to hear the rest, but trust me, it's a great song. The rest of it's great. (laughs) And yeah, we we would pack the auditorium, and there'd be hundreds of us, you know, and we'd just all be singing the song together, and... A little weird when I think about it, but um, <laughs> it was it was a great time, and you know it was a good you know had a had a good ring to it. You know, kindness is contagious. Yeah, we're we're all on board with this. You know, we we like being kind to each other. Uh, you know, we we enjoy putting others first. We like being selfless. And then the song ends, and you go to lunch, and some kid takes your fruit roll up, and <laughs> then we see just how contagious kindness actually is. <laughs> but it seems that our culture believes that. Kindness is an inherently good thing. I mean, being kind is admirable. We strive to be kind. Yet, sometimes we take a look around us and we wonder if we are actually kind. Uh, We hear the news and we wonder if we actually live in a kind society. As as you guys heard from Daniel, uh, many of us in RUF took a trip to Chicago last week. And we were there on a service trip and certainly saw lots of kindness on display throughout the week. But let me tell you guys, Chicago is a broken city. You spend some time there, you spend some time in New York, D.C., on our campus, and you can't help but wonder, is kindness contagious? And is kindness really a principle our society lives by? Today we're going to look at a passage that demonstrates one of the greatest acts of kindness and mercy in all of the Old Testament, Uh, But while this passage draws a beautiful illustration for us of what kindness looks like, we're also going to look at why we struggle to show kindness and how we can change. So with that, I'm going to read our passage for us. I'll pray, and then we can dive in. So we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, the whole thing. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And David said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said, 
He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, or son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king's servant, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring him in the produce, and your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants, and Ziba said to the king, According to all my lord, the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here tonight. Thank you for your word. God, we know that your word is good and it's true. And I pray, Father, that you would come and meet us tonight, wherever we at. And I pray, Father, that you would send us your spirit to help understand this passage, to apply it to our hearts and to our lives, that we might know you better and love those around us. Thank you for everything, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, diving right into this thing, right out of the gate, in the very first verse of our passage, we've got King David asking a question. He says, who can I bless from the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake? So there's a lot loaded in this question, and there are lots of characters to sort out. So let's give a bit of context here for the history before we go full speed ahead. So David, as some of us may know, at this point is the king over all of Israel. And having been anointed king, he's the current ruler over the entire nation, now that the old king, Saul, has died. Uh, Saul, to refresh your memory, was the first king of Israel. And after dying in battle, David has now become the new king to replace him. And for those of us who may remember, uh, David and Saul, while he was still alive, they didn't get along very well. Uh, although David was always a faithful and loyal servant of King Saul, Saul was incredibly jealous of David. And Saul's jealousy over all of David's military accomplishments and achievements led him, drove him to bitterness. And he actually got to the point where he tried to murder David on several occasions. So you get the idea. They were not great friends. <laughs> but now Saul has been killed in battle, and David is the new king. So that's David and that's Saul, but who's this Jonathan guy? So we read in the passage that Jonathan is Saul's son. And for those who may remember the story of the Old Testament, Jonathan and David were great friends. And though they were not related, they loved each other as brothers. And even though Jonathan's father Saul sought to kill David, Jonathan showed love and loyalty to David. And you may be wondering, well, after Saul's death, why wouldn't Jonathan become the new king of Israel? Well, when, Saul's, when Saul died in battle, all of his sons died with him, including Jonathan. And as God had anointed David to be the next king over all of Israel, 
He's now begun his reign. So hopefully that catches us up a little bit with some of the backstory. And now in our passage tonight, we see David asking, is there anyone left from the house of Saul that he could show kindness? And in verse 2, we read that Ziba, a servant of Saul, is brought in, and he says, there is indeed one son of Jonathan, Saul's grandson, named Mephibosheth. And we read that Mephibosheth is crippled in both his feet. Now, this is where it's important to understand uh, how such a transfer of power would often unfold in these times. Remember that Saul was the king of Israel, he's dead now, and David has been given all power and authority. And back in these times, whenever power would change like this, the new king would typically do whatever he could to make sure he would stay in power, right? And to stay in power, what do you have to do? You have to kill all of your enemies, right? And to stay in power, you have to kill your enemies and you have to eliminate every potential threat to your new kingdom. And that especially includes former heirs to the throne, and especially if the former king was your enemy. So in an ancient kingdom like this, first thing a new king might often do would be to search out and find the old descendants of the previous king and have them executed. To secure your throne, you eliminated the potential threats. So it's often a pretty bloody time and a terrifying time to be a former heir to the throne. So here we find Mephibosheth, the lone remaining grandson of Saul, the previous king who had tried to murder David. And now that David's in control, it's time for vengeance, right? I mean, as the new king, who does David need to go kill to secure his throne? You can imagine how Mephibosheth might be feeling at this time. I mean, he's got to be horrified. I mean, by blood, he's the one remaining descendant of Saul. Saul, a man who had hated David and tried to kill him. And now, now that David's in power, I mean, what's he got to be thinking? It's over. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm done for. And he's probably thinking, where can I hide? I mean, where can I go? If only I weren't crippled and I could run, I would go as far from here as I could. And we see David sends his men to go collect Mephibosheth, knock on the door. We're going to see the king. You can only imagine how Mephibosheth might have felt. He's found me. It's over. He's come looking for me, and now he's found me. And in verse 6, we read that eventually they bring Mephibosheth before King David, and he falls on his face, and he pays homage. Vulnerable, weak, and humbled, Mephibosheth lies at the foot of the throne and awaits his doom. And what does the king do? We read in verse 7, David says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. What? <laughs> what? Uh, instead of executing Mephibosheth, first he spares his life. Do not fear, he says. How powerful would these words have been in this moment? The king says, do not fear. And not only does he spare his life, but what else? He says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, and you shall eat at my table forever. He gives him all the land that Saul had before he died, and then he gives him servants to work the land, as we read in verse 10. This is far more than a pardon. This is restoration. I mean, David doesn't give him death. He gives him land and servants, and most of all, a promise that he will eat at his table forever. 
and the significance of this last bit is huge. Being granted a seat at the king's table means far more than a good square meal every day. It means that Mephibosheth is part of the family. In this context, being seated like this at David's table is basically like being made a son. I mean, what kindness is this? I mean, what radical generosity is this? And my question is, what if we showed kindness like this in our community? I mean, can you imagine what it would look like if we loved others this way on our campus? I mean, what would Penn State look like if we showed mercy like this, if we served others like this, if we loved our families this way or our enemies this way? What would RUF look like? And yes, you might say, well, I do see some of that. I mean, I see people being kind. I see people serving and helping others. And that's absolutely true. I mean, obviously, we have plenty of examples that we can point to. But the one thing I really want to focus on in particular is the question that's asked in the first verse, where David says, is there still anyone left that I may show kindness? Isn't there someone out there who I can go bless? Can you imagine what RUF would look like or what our campus would look like if we thought this way? I mean, sure, most of us is probably likely to help out and lend a hand whenever someone asks us to, but how often do we ask ourselves, is there anyone left that I can go be a blessing to? Is there anyone who hasn't been blessed enough yet? David isn't answering a request. He's going out of his way to search for need. He's seeking people to bless. He's not content to wait for someone to come and ask for his help. He's looking rigorously for opportunities. This is profoundly different than the way I typically think about showing kindness or serving in my community. I mean, let's remember, Mephibosheth wasn't going to go to David. No chance. David had to go to him. David had to pursue. He put in time and effort and inquiry to go out of his way and find someone that he didn't even know was alive. I would encourage all of us to think about the ways God has gifted us and how we might be a blessing to others in our community. I mean, how can we go out of our way to find someone to bless? Has God given you food and a kitchen? Who might you be able to go make a meal for? Has God given you book smarts? Is there anyone left in any of your classes who might be able to use help with their homework? I mean, can you play an instrument? How might you bless the RUF community or the music team? And maybe you don't feel like you have any real tangible skill or talent, but has God given you a little bit of extra free time? Maybe you could help out the State College Food Bank or the Soup Kitchen partnered with Abba Java, or maybe you could befriend that one person who seems pretty lonely and no one really wants to talk to. What would it actually look like if this were our attitude? If we were constantly thinking, is there anyone left that I could go bless? Not waiting for people to come with us to us with requests, but actively seeking out and pursuing needs that we might not even know exist. Again, I don't know about you, but this is usually not how I think about kindness or service. Now, I know I've talked with several of you in RUF about how sometimes many of us struggle to Think of ways to serve the outside community. Uh, maybe we find a service role within RUF, but when it comes to the rest of campus or state college or beyond, don't really know what to do. And I I've struggled with this too, and you know what? Maybe we have to start taking this approach. I mean, if we wait for people to come to us, we may never find 
great opportunities to serve. But if we take initiative, I don't think it's going to take long at all until we see a myriad of needs all around us. And it, it may sound silly, but that may mean conducting a Google search of community service opportunities in State College. And maybe it means checking out a service org, or making a phone call, or visiting a food bank. I mean, these might sound like simple little things, but without this kind of initiative, we may never find a real place to serve. So let us search for people to bless. And while this probably means that we should make phone calls and ask around and conduct searches, it most definitely means that we have to keep our eyes open. If we're keeping a careful eye on the people around us, if we're listening to our friends and our classmates, we're going to start seeing all kinds of needs. And if we're praying for the Lord to open our eyes and show us these opportunities, we're going to find countless ways to love our friends, our families, strangers, and even our enemies. This story offers an incredible example of how to love others and bless our community, but if you read this passage and you're like me, you can't help but think, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't. I know I can't. It's too hard. It's, it's far easier for me to neglect than to pursue people. It's easier for me to hate than to love, to be selfish than to be selfless. Or, or maybe I will help out or show kindness or serve, but only if it's convenient for me or if it's my schedule. We read of David's kindness in this passage, and deep down inside, we know this isn't us. We've failed to love others on so many occasions. We've neglected needs in our community, and we've harbored bitterness against our enemies. But why do we struggle so much to show kindness and generosity? Maybe we're dealing with insecurities over our own acceptance, fighting for our own status within a community. We're simply too distracted to show mercy to others. Maybe first I've got to get established in this place, and then I can start looking beyond myself. Or maybe we finally do feel that we're accepted, but now we want others to have to work for the things that we've earned. You know, we had to work hard to get where we're at, and so should others. And whether that be with grades or money or friend groups, we don't want to make it easy on others when it wasn't easy for us. So we withhold kindness. Or maybe we struggle with thinking that there are some people that we're simply better than. Maybe people who are different, enough, different from us who aren't worth our time or our energy, don't deserve our help. Or perhaps we've tried showing kindness and serving others, but we get impatient with people who don't seem to appreciate it. And if they don't say thank you, well, I'm probably not going to do it again. Or we want to volunteer and help the community, but only by our timetable and our availability. Or we want to forgive that friend that hurt us, but what if it doesn't go over well? What if they don't even care that I tried to make things right? If you wrestle with any of these obstacles, as I have, you're not alone. Being kind is really hard. And, and we realize when we stop to reflect on our actions and on our hearts that David's example is beautiful, but we know that it is not by our nature to follow it. And maybe you're listening to this sermon and you're thinking, sounds like a lot to do. It sounds like I've got to go do amazing things out in my community and being kind uh, entails a lot more than I thought it did, and I'm just not sure I can do it. And if that's what you're thinking right now, then you're on the right track for the moment. But there's more, much more. All that's true, but 
if we stop there, we would miss the whole point of this passage. And while I do want you all to leave today thinking about ways you can go show kindness and look for needs in the community and love people, the point of the passage is not about being like David. <laughs> if you read just two chapters later in this book, we see that David doesn't actually have it all figured out. He has an affair with a woman named Bathsheba, and then he has her husband killed. That's two chapters after this. Trust me, the point is not be like David. God performed a beautiful work of kindness through David, and we should look for opportunities for God to use us similarly. But the point of the passage is that we can only do this when we realize we are not David in this story. We are Mephibosheth. We are the lost, the crippled, and the orphans. We are the ones who cowered in fear. We were the hopeless and the lame. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the sins we commit every day, the ways that we've failed to show kindness to others, and the ways that we've neglected people in our community, we have all rebelled against God. And that has not only made us outcasts from heaven, that has made us enemies of the God of the universe. We are Mephibosheth, and as outcast cripples, we lived in despair. But just as David has shown kindness and mercy to Mephibosheth, God has shown this same mercy to us. Like David, God has reconciled us to himself, putting us in right relation with him again. He has flipped the script, turning us from rejected enemies into beloved children. But how did God do this? And why would he? How and why does a just God do this for us? Well, why did David show kindness to Mephibosheth? What was his original question in verse 1? We read, Is there anyone that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And in verse 7, David says, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. So David blesses Mephibosheth for the sake of another. One more important note of backstory now. Now let's remember, David and Jonathan were best friends, right? And they loved each other as brothers. And back in 1 Samuel, when Jonathan was still alive, these two great friends made a covenant with each other. Now, a covenant is simply put an agreement between two parties, kind of like a deal, uh, where each party promises to uphold their end of the bargain. But more than a mere contract, covenants of the Bible are a blend of both law and love. So they're binding like a legal document, but they also capture the affection and the intimacy of a relationship. And in two occasions, in the book of 1 Samuel, Jonathan and David make a covenant with each other to love and bless one another forever. And now, back to our passage today, after Jonathan has died, David delivers on his covenant promise. Jonathan loves David to the end, and he ultimately loses his life in battle, and for his sake, David has fulfilled his covenant promise by blessing the poor crippled Mephibosheth. And just as David had made a covenant with Jonathan, God has made a covenant with us. God says, obey my commands and you will be blessed. Only not a single one of us could obey all of his commands, so we're separated from him. Not one of us could meet our end of the covenant, except for Jesus. 
2,000 years ago, Jesus came into this world, lived a perfect life, and was nailed to a cross to fulfill our end of the covenant for us. That now all who believe in him might be loved forever. God's covenant with us is obey and you'll be blessed. And we don't obey, but Jesus does for us. And now in this new covenant, we receive God's blessing purely by the work and grace of Jesus and not a single thing that we do. Jesus fulfills our end of the covenant for us by his life and death on the cross. Christ is our Jonathan. And God will not forsake his covenant people, just as David did not forsake his covenant with Jonathan. When David looks at Mephibosheth, he sees something of Jonathan. And just the same way, when God the Father looks at us, we believe he sees Jesus. Now, when David showed Mephibosheth mercy, he pardoned him by sparing his life, but he also adopted him into his family. And if, if we place our faith in this Jesus, then we must come to know this story becomes our story. God is not just pardoning our sins, but he is making us righteous. He's making us his children. Like Phibosheth, our guilt is removed, but we are also declared good. And we get adopted by the king. So for someone who's standing on death row, not only does the judge say, you're free to go home now, but he says, come to my home. I have a mansion and a room prepared just for you. I've chosen to adopt you as my child because I love you. And now all that I have is yours. Sounds pretty good, right? <laughs> I mean, this is crazy. I mean, David could have shown Mephibosheth mercy by simply letting him go, not executing him. It'd be similar to the, the person on death row being pardoned of their crimes. And this would be a great deal for Mephibosheth, right? But it's just the beginning. David doubles down by adopting him and inviting him to eat at his table forever. The man on death row has not been declared innocent. He's declared righteous. And he now freely enjoys all the benefits of someone who's lived perfectly. Jesus Christ, the perfect man who obeyed in every way, took the ultimate penalty of, on the cross that we might be adopted. The gospel is so much better than a clean slate. For all who believe, yes, your sins are forgiven and they're put on Christ, but there is so much more. Not only is your sin removed, you're declared righteous. If you believe in this Jesus, it's not only as if you've never sinned, but now you have done everything right your whole life because Christ's resume has now become yours. Our resume to get into heaven, the one that's full of sin and hate and shame, Jesus Christ takes that from you. And Jesus' resume, the one that's full of love and kindness and faithfulness, he gives it to you. So now God the Father looks at us and he sees Jesus. This is incredible news. And he looks at us and he says, I want you and I love you. And God can now justly accept us because he sees us as worthy. And to think that all of this was made possible because Jesus went to the cross for us when we were still sinners, when we were still enemies, outcasts, and cripples, when we were still Mephibosheth, Jesus died for us that all who believe might become children of God. And that for his sake, God might look around and say, is there anyone that I can bless? And he sees us. This is the greatest display of mercy and kindness the world has ever seen. 
Maybe you're here tonight and you're afraid to go to God because you're afraid of what he might think of you. Maybe you don't want to talk to him about some of the ugliest sins or the shame in your life because you don't want to confront the big God of the universe with the darkest parts of your heart. Or maybe you're here and you'd call yourself a Christian, but you find yourself not able to confess the ugliest sins with God in prayer because you know that he already knows everything, but you don't want to have to work through that with him. Maybe you feel like Mephibosheth probably did before David, afraid of punishment or a shameful glance. And if you find yourself anywhere along that spectrum here tonight, I want you to know that we don't have an angry God who just wants to punish us. When we turn to God in prayer, we're welcomed by a Father who loves us and is overjoyed to see us for the sake of Christ. And when we go to him, he loves us and he listens because indeed we would not go to him, but he has come to us in the person of Jesus. And like David found Mephibosheth, he has found us and he's offering us not a sword, but a home, not punishment or shame, but restoration. And when we pray to him, we don't look for acceptance because we already have it. Despite our ugliest sins, we don't dread his presence because we are his children and he is committed to loving us by a covenant that cannot be broken. It's only when we really understand this miracle, if we can ever really understand it, that we can begin to show true kindness to others. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, I'm all about showing kindness to people and serving in my community, but do I really need this Jesus guy to do it? And maybe his teaching was good and his deeds were admirable, but do I really need him to be a part of my life to truly be merciful? I'm going to argue yes, and here's why. First, we can't generate enough love on our own to consistently and genuinely show kindness to those around us. On our own, we will always run dry. And I think we know this. But also, if Jesus is not who he says he is, and there isn't a God in heaven who cares about the lost, the hurt, and the broken of this world, then what kind of mercy can we really offer people? Sorry, but I hope you feel better. Here's some money, I hope it helps. Or maybe I'll spend some time with you and read something to you. These are not bad methods, and I don't bash them, but at the end of the day, if we have nothing to offer beyond the mere material nature of this world, how do we show kindness and comfort to those who have lost everything? To those who have lost things that are irreplaceable? Rather, when we point people to Jesus, we offer them a rich and glorious inheritance. Redemption, the forgiveness of sins, adoption into the king's family. And we're not offering mere abstract religious ideas. We're offering a person. This is what kindness is all about, and it only comes with Jesus. When we were still sinners... Christ died for us on a cross that the Father might look for a people to bless. And if you believe in this Jesus, you become a child of God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'd love to talk to you after the service even more about what this looks like. This is life-changing news. Christ died for us that we might not just be accepted, but that we would be adopted. And it's only when we know this mercy that we can truly show it to others. And as we wrap up, Let's not forget Mephibosheth's response. In verse 8, after David tells him all of this, Mephibosheth's only response 
what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? <laughs> he is humbled, <laughs> for sure. He's crippled, he's orphaned, and he's in no way fit to sit at the king's table, and he knows he doesn't deserve it. But David makes him a son anyway. So now what becomes of those obstacles that hold us back from being kind? Well, when we're accepted by the God of the universe, we can begin to accept others who are different from us. Uh, when we know that we were Mephibosheth, we understand that we're truly no better than anyone else. And when we know what it costs Jesus to earn our adoption, we can serve in ways that are inconvenient for us. And we know that Jesus died for us when we were still sinners. And because of this, now we can show kindness to our enemies. Christ shows us a type of kindness that actually is contagious. If your heart's been changed by this love, you can't help but spread it. So let's go find the orphans in our midst. Let's find the lost, the rejected, and the weak at Penn State and State College and our families. But if we just read the story and see David as an example to follow, we'll never be able to do it. We can't. We have to see that we are Mephibosheth. And because of Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection, all who believe may be made children of God for his sake. We are deeply loved. And this is where our security lies. So let's take Jesus with us and let his kindness fuel ours while resting in his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage. God, you are merciful and you are kind and you are loving. Father, we know that we are not. Father, we confess that we aren't like this, but we thank you for sending your son anyway. We thank you for Jesus and his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. And I pray that you would change our hearts now by his love. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see needs within this community, to see ways that we can show kindness, forgive enemies, and love the weak in our midst. And Father, would we do all of this while resting in your grace, knowing that you love us and you have adopted us. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.